in our campaign, we're like very much a data-driven campaign. I mean, I'm all about it. You're seeing the data that's coming from the trends of the state, what we saw as far as voter turnout, how communities are voting, what messages work. The data that's involved with this is so on point and is something that is very much needed. And data, again, though, could have been used in this bill. And we just like turned our backs to it. It's like, okay, show me the proof. Show me the data that there was some voter fraud. Show it to me because the process in order just to cast your vote is arduous. There's so many checks and balances to ensure that the data is accurate. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Representative Claudia Ordez Perez, it's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you today. You're the Democratic representative for the 76th District of the state of Texas. And we met recently when I was in Austin for South by Southwest. I was very inspired to hear about the work that you've been doing with many of your colleagues in Texas. Before we get into that, I thought we could start by asking you a little bit about El Paso. I'm thrilled that you all, any opportunity that I have to talk about El Paso and the border region here in in Texas is something that I'm just always thrilled to talk about. So thank you all for having me. I'm truly, truly excited to be here. But yeah, so El Paso is a city in the state of Texas. We are the sixth largest city in the state of Texas, the 19th largest city in the nation. And as you all know, when you look at a map, I mean, Texas is, is massive. I mean, we're, but El Paso is at the far, far western. So we're very close to Mexico. Uh, Juarez is what we consider our sister city. And then you have uh, New Mexico that is literally like a five-minute drive from, from where I'm at. And Mexico is also like a five-minute drive. There's a point where you can go up the mountains and you can see Mexico and New Mexico. And so it's just, it's really incredible to have this massive, beautiful borderplex region that's made up of majority Latinos. So there's there, the majority of us are Latinos here. We have the large carry installation in, in El Paso, and there's just a ton of history here. We have the oldest active mission here in El Paso, which is called the Isleta Mission that is currently in my house district. So there's a lot of beautiful, uh, the culture is beautiful. The food is great. Yeah, you know, so if anybody ever has an opportunity to come come to our region, come to El Paso, we'd love to host you. There's so many wonderful things to do. The weather is great. In Austin, it wasn't that bad, but Texas tends to be very humid. It's very, it's dry here. We have dry heat in El Paso. So the summer nights are gorgeous, beautiful sunsets, lots of fun things to do. Great margaritas, great Mexican food, great people. And so it's just such a beautiful place. And I love our people and our culture. So love to have you all out in, in, in El Paso. If anybody's listening, just you can always find me on social media. And I'd love to connect with you and show you around. So yeah, we're really excited to spend a bunch more time out there. It's, um, it sounds like it's such a beautiful place. I've never been. I've been, I've been to Texas. Christy and I both visited Texas in the past. So we're really excited to come and visit El Paso. As you said, it's, there's so much history the history that surrounds, you know, the old West. El Paso is the the home of uh, of the six shooter, the six shooter capital of the, of the United States, as we understand it. You were saying just a moment ago before we jumped on the podcast that that you guys 
you know, shared a really deep affinity with the region, um, you might say, rather than uh, with the state or with the country as such, but that you're, you know, you're a Paso, um, you're the Juarez region. Could you say more about, you know, how like people of El Paso relate to one another and, and that sort of kinship that you guys have for the region? No, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a good thing. It could be a good thing. It could be a, a, a bad thing at times, you know, because of our proximity that we're so far away from the capital. Like I said, it's a nine hour drive um, all the way to Austin. And I've made that drive way too many times. Um, but we in, in El Paso, we always try to think of ourselves as always ensuring that we put El Paso first when it comes to a number of issues, I mean, our issues here in El Paso are, are very different than I would say than the, than the rest of the state because of just, again, how, how unique we are as a region. Our needs, you know, are, are very much different um, than I would say like Houston or Austin, for example. Like the port of entries here in El Paso, we have many families, working families that commute back and forth from, from Mexico um, to El Paso. Many students that that travel here from Mexico and attend our universities here. And so we're really united um, on, on that front, even, and then in, in, in other ways, for example, like COVID. I mean, COVID has literally no boundaries. And we in El Paso were really hard hit by, by the pandemic. We ranked 10, that's correct. We ranked 10 as far as large cities with the number of deaths when it came to COVID. And, you know, we, we have a big hospitality industry. We have a lot of essential workers that both, again, commute from Mexico to, to El Paso and vice versa. So when we were talking about, you know, the pandemic, we were in constant communication with officials in Mexico as well, because this was a this was an issue that had an impact on our region, right? And also New Mexico. And so it's 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 something that is a is a blessing in many ways, you know, as far as being so close to Mexico and New Mexico, we have our, our own issues. We share the same air, many times the same water. It's a definitely it's a unique city. And of course, the majority of us being Hispanic here. I mean, you don't really have communities like this. We really consider ourselves sometimes in a bubble because of just how unique we are in, in El Paso in comparison, not only to the rest of the state, but the rest of the nation, right? It's just, like I said, just a beautiful community that has its fair share of issues that we have to tackle and, and deal with, but we do it united as a bold reflection. And you spoke about the pandemic and needing to work very, very much locally. And that's, that's also one of the themes that you spoke about at South by Southwest, the fact that everything happens locally. Can you talk about that a little bit more and your own history? Because you started off your political career in local council. So can you share with us, paint us a picture for what you mean by everything happens locally? Absolutely. So you know, for personally coming from from the, from the local level, so I started off. I started off on city council. I was the youngest elected official in the city of El Paso when I had first started. I believe I was like 28 at the time, and I learned quickly uh, just how many issues that we dealt with on a, on a local level that had an impact on so many El Pasoans in their daily lives. I mean, everything from just basic issues, from turning on the lights to turning on your water to the streets that you drive on. I mean, public safety was a big concern. Of course, you know, potholes that I call streets, parks. I mean, and we were front and center 
weekly. We had weekly meetings and people we are very were very accessible, accessible. And so constituents, you know, felt felt comfortable always attending, you know, our meetings. It's it's very difficult for El Pasoans to do that in Austin, for example. And so you don't see a lot of that engagement because again, we're just so far away. Um, but a lot of the issues that we deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis, at least when we are at the city, have a, have an a, a, an impact on people's everyday lives. Like I said, just ensuring that the trash is going to be picked up to light the streets that we're working on, to the lights that are being turned, you know, that you're turning on your lights and, and your water. Even issues like animal welfare reform, which is a big issue for me, public safety. You know, it's it, these these issues are are very close to people and people's first experience with government tends to be local government. And so I learned a lot. My heart is still with local government. Um, it's thing that's near and dear to me. And what was frustrating, to be honest, was, you know, during this, this past legislative session, I mean, it was such a bad session for working families and many issues that we were deliberating and discussing and debating really had um, some serious impacts on communities like El Paso. I felt like we were under under attack in many ways, considering we're heavily mi- we're a heavily minority community. It was it was just a, a big issue not having these, whether it's hearings, whether it's discussions on the House floor, and it wasn't as accessible to people in El Paso as opposed to, you know, the their experience um, on any communicating and and working with their with their local governments. And it was really unfortunate. And that's that's one thing, that's one priority of mine coming in is how we're going to ensure that El Pasoans are really going to have a seat at the table this time. Because all these issues, I mean, this session was, I mean, it, it made not only national news, I mean, feel I felt like in many ways worldwide news as far as just how egregious many of these issues that uh, this these harmful pieces of legislation that came out of Texas, you know, and everything from attacks on voting rights to women's rights, you name it. Um, what we can teach in our in our schools, I mean, attacks on transgender youth. I mean, it was it was such a terrible session, and it was so hard to ensure that El Pasoans were up to date and at least knew, you know, what was what was going on, and a lot of that was was a uh, was cause for concern um and, and many times. So coming in this next session, I definitely want to ensure that we are going to have El Pasoans at the table creating legislative work groups early on, finding out those issues that are important to El Pasoans, whether it's job growth, whether it's more uh, in, ensuring that teachers are adequately paid a number of, uh, of a myriad of issues, but having them involved with the process early on, considering we're so far, will only, will only empower communities like El Paso to ensure that they're part of the process. They know what's happening um, with this piece of legislation that matters to them. And if there's reinforcements that are needed, having letter writing campaigns, having them come testify, whether it's online or in person, you know, reaching out to their legislators, that was what was so frustrating, guys, during this during this past session is like the voices of El Pasoans, I felt were not at the table. And that's something we certainly need to change. And that's something that I want to do. And it's just looking back, I'm like, I wonder if it, I feel like it could have made differences considering just how bad these issues were. 
I'm going to talk about in particular, if you don't mind, really quick about what was one issue that had a, a, a serious impact on El Paso. So we had the worst domestic terrorist attack against Hispanics in our community. I don't know if you all recall that there was a mass shooting um, in El Paso where a person drove 10 hours to El Paso to target people that looked like me, right? That were Hispanics, right? And he killed 23 people at a Walmart and it was awful. I mean, our our community is still reeling through that, is still healing through that. And when we're talking about legislation that's going to protect people in the future from these, these egregious attacks, reasonable gun laws, we weren't, we did the opposite. Now in the state of Texas, anyone over the age of 18 can now walk freely with a gun without any training and without any certification. It is the most lenient gun law. I wouldn't even call it a law because it's just like people can really kind of just do as they please now. And it, and it, it was such a slap in the face for communities like El Paso. And I felt like many of them didn't have the ability to have a seat at the table um, during discussions and it's a major issue, Claudia, that you um, chat just now. It would be great for us to take a step back and understand a little bit more about the legislation you're speaking about. You've spoken about voter rights, gun rights, women's rights. You made headlines with a number of your fellow Democrat representatives from the state of Texas when you, when you took the unusual step to break quorum. And you traveled to Washington, D.C. with a number of Democratic caucus members to raise awareness of these issues, of what was happening in Texas, and, and you've described some of them. Can you just walk us through the decision process with your fellow representatives? Yeah, no, I, I'd be happy to discuss that. And I'm, and I'm glad because not a whole lot of people know like kind of the behind the scenes and how how this all came about. When you look at politics in, in the United States, I mean, you see, especially when you're looking at Congress, that, that tends to be in the news the most. I mean, you just can see how divisive and polarized the political environment can be. In the state of Texas, we have for many years taken pride in bipartisanship. People from both sides of the aisle, whether you're Republican or Democrat, really look down at just what's kind of happening in our nation's capital you know, a lot with a number of issues. And unfortunately, this past legislative session, you know, Republicans even touted as such. I mean, this was the most conservative session in Texas's history. Everything from attacks on voting rights to women's reproductive rights to what we're teaching in our schools to transgender. I mean, it was just one issue after the other. And at some point, Democrats have to make a, a, a have to make difficult decisions, have to make bold decisions. And mind you, quorum, breaking quorum is not is not a tool that is used often. Um, this past quorum break was the fourth time in Texas's history. So it's not a tool that is used often. But like I said, once all of these issues, I mean, there's at some point, you know, it, it it becomes weighing and your constituents, your constituents are looking at you like, what is happening at our capital? What are you all doing? You all need to fight. You know, it was just the immense amount of pressure we were feeling because typically what happens in the state of Texas is there's like one divisive social issue, just like one, because 
the, the more and more you have these divisive issues, you're going to have chaos, right? And so this was really rare that we had this many issues that, that passed um, the, 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 Texas, the Texas ledge. And at some point, you have to make a decision that you have to, you have to, you have to do something. And it's not easy. Corn breaks are not easy to pull off. Um, but I really attribute this to the women, truly the women that stepped up uh, from the Black and Brown um, caucus. And I mean, there were so many of us that were pulling people off the House floor saying, like, we have to step up, we have to do something. And it and it worked. And it was, again, not easy to pull off, but it was something that I think was needed um, to start not only the national discussion on how we're going to protect the freedom to vote, but what we're going to do in the future to ensure that these issues, this is something that Democrats are going to take very serious moving forward. They know that we're going to use whatever tools necessary to ensure that we're going to be standing up for our constituencies and our communities. And so this quorum break was just a really for me, it was just didn't even bat an eye. I mean, this is something that that we needed to do to ensure that we're fighting, we're fighting for for our communities back home. Yeah. And it's abundantly clear to everybody, I think around the world right now, just how divisive the political context is in the United States. And I think it's, you know, with a considerable amount of uh, anxiety that we look on, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as it unfolds. I, I'm wondering if if you wouldn't mind maybe, and again, you know, for, for an audience that's obviously here in Australia that, that might not be following so closely, you mentioned again, you know, voting rights and, and what's being taught in your schools and so forth. Could you unpack for us a little bit what are these conservative legislators that you're responding to and reacting to? What are the concerns that they're pursuing? What what is it that's driving this this wave of um, of, of conservatism in the in the Texas legislature at the moment? Yeah, no, absolutely, and I and I'm really happy to address this. And this is kind of like behind the scenes kind of things. I don't think many of them would feel comfortable, you know, talking about this publicly, but. In my honest opinion, I truly believe this came from the Trump presidency. And there is this wave or this, I want to say a wave, maybe it is a wave of just immense amount of pressure to move the agenda further and further right, right? Um, so Texas, what happens in Texas, and I think this is what we discussed during our panel, it's just, it has a ripple effect in what other what other states, red states are going to be trying to do or trying to do to move that agenda further and further right. Who is the most conservative? I believe that the fallout from the Trump presidency was just that. And to ensure that these, whatever, whatever um, issue is spoken about or whatever piece of legislation is spoken about, governors and Republicans in those states can tout like this was by far the most conservative, you know, issue and it starts here in Texas or starts here in Florida. So it's like this competition on what, which state is going to move further right the fastest, right? Especially now that we are, that our president is, is Democrat, right? So you have, you have those issues. And unfortunately it had an impact on, on this state. Um, many working families were, you know, hard hit by, by this. I mean, you had I mean, I can even talk, I mean, we can go on and on hours about just the various issues that were passed this session, the harmful pieces of legislation you had. Like I told you about that gun bill that passed, 
that's really going to have a lasting impacts on on Texans. El Pasoans don't feel safe knowing that now everyone can walk freely without a you know without a license, um, without any training, and just there are no protections now for communities like El Paso moving forward. So that anxiety, you feel it. You feel that anxiety in our schools. Now we have what's called critical, you know, with critical race theory and what was you when our schools can't talk about white supremacy. You can't even mention that as 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 a thing. It it was completely just taken out of our our history books in essence. That's not to be discussed. You can't talk about the works of black and Latino leaders in in the state anymore. So our kids are getting the full picture when it comes to when it comes to history. I mean, it's just these are just facts that happen in our in our history. And it is almost censored in a way as far as like what's going to be taught for, for these future generations. You have the heartbeat bill it was called the, the quote unquote heartbeat bill. It was, it was an, a bill that was an attack on, on women's reproductive systems where in essence, now you can't have an abortion after eight weeks, but for most, I mean, six weeks. So now, but for most women, I mean, not even most women, I mean, the cycle is you find out you're, you're pregnant maybe four weeks after a missed period. You only have two weeks to act now. I mean, it's just, it has, it has missed, it has displaced so many women. Unfortunately, many people in our community are now having to go to Mexico across the border, um, New Mexico. Um, I mean, there's little to, little to any options for working families that are looking to their leaders to really give them protections. I mean, we're not, we're not doing that. I feel we're failing as a state um, that are really protecting our, our community members. Um, so it was, it was just a really unfortunate session and I'm very nervous and anxious about what next session is going to look like. If it continues this way, I don't even know what that means for, for the state, because as we mentioned, everything that happens here kind of trickles, people get ideas of what's going to happen. So I don't even know what this means for our nation. I'm just very concerned about what next session is going to look like. If it continues to be this way, I mean, it's going to be incredibly more divisive and polarized and we're not going to be able to get much anything done. I mean, we we need to focus on COVID relief. We need to focus on like, act, or I mean, these common sense things, edu- fully funding education. Like, what are we doing talking about these issues that like attacks on transgender youth? I mean, really, like, why are we hurting people instead of like, I feel like our jobs are to help people. And the way that the state, the trends, if it's anything that happened last session, I'm very concerned about the future of our state. So you went to Washington, D.C. specifically to talk with leaders, Congress leaders and Democrat leaders on the issue of voting rights. What is the problem with that bill? The voting suppression bill is what we call it. And so when we broke quorum, we were just kind of behind the scenes. We were figuring out where we could break quorum. It had to be outside of the state. There were issues, there were warrants out for our arrest. So we couldn't stay in the state of Texas, right? So we had to go somewhere. What better place than Washington, D.C. at our nation's capital? So we we're literally like knocking on President Biden's door, like, please help us, give us some reinforcements here because of just what's happening at the state of Texas. And what was happening in Georgia and Florida when it came to the voting suppression bill and all these piecemeal, you know, harmful pieces of legislation, it could be corrected if there is just a national 
um, bill that protects people's freedom to vote, right? So what better way than going to our nation's capital? They were discussing the infrastructure bill at the time. And so it wasn't top of mind because they were in the middle of those negotiations. But having us there lobbying Congress, lobbying the Senate, really applied that pressure that we needed because it just looked really bad, in my opinion, that we're there fighting for our communities and no one's really moving the needle on on the on this discussion. So it worked. Um, you had a number of, of uh, well, senators, congressional members. We met with the vice president on, on, on voting rights and what we can do moving forward. So we definitely move the needle and, and those discussions at the, at the, at the, at the federal level. And what we were really looking for, for example, in Texas, we just ended the primaries, right? So I just came off the campaign trail. We haven't seen voter turnout this low in, I don't know how long. I mean, 50, I'm saying half of mail-in ballot applications were rejected because of the new restrictions that were placed on this. And this is not just a story in El Paso. This is across the state because mail-in, there was an attack on mail-in ballots because when you look at the data, the way that the trends look, people who vote by mail tend to vote Democrat. And so, of course, there's going to be attack on mail-in ballots. And they're called county elections administrators. They can't even send a notice to remind you about your mail-in ballot because now that's a crime. It has become, and it now empowers um, these political, I guess, watchdogs or just like these bullies really to harass voters. That's now allowed. I mean, you, th- th- this bill was so egregious and it was really meant to intimidate people. It was meant to... Um, add further just restrictions and people are just feeling the need like, oh, I just don't, I'm just not going to vote because this is becoming way too much stress than than way more added stress than I need. I already, I'm already going through so much personally. I mean, the families that are still reeling through COVID and they're just trying to vote freely and safety and safely. And we're not even giving them those options. We had drive-through voting um, where, uh, especially for, for our disabled people in our disabled community that needed help filling out the ballot, that's not allowed anymore. You had uh, drive 24-hour drive-through voting that's now stripped because those are, I mean, people who are working graveyard shifts, for example, like a lot of our healthcare workers, that was the way for them to, to cast their vote. That is now taken away. So just a number of things, just making it more difficult to vote. And you, and you saw it. I mean, it, there was there's been a number of articles that talk about just how dismal the voter turnout was. And it was it was the voting bill worked as it was intended to. And that was to suppress the vote. And it, and it worked in the state of Texas. Can you perhaps say a little bit about what you think might be needed? So if this if this voting bill that did pass, I think you said in the end and is egregious in its attack on voting rights was entirely the wrong way to go. As far as the reform of voting mechanisms in the state of Texas, what did you, what do you think? Well, was reform even necessary? And if if so, you know, what would it have looked like? Do you think? You know, they, the way that they justified this bill was they wanted to what did they call voter integrity or something like that? But there was still not a single case that they could point to where there was a voter fraud. Not a single case they could point to. And so it was it was so frustrating because when we were debating this at nauseam. It's like, show us the proof. Why are we even talking about this? Show us the proof. 
and they weren't able to do it. It, and, and it was, we called it out that it was what it was. They're just afraid of losing power because this state, the way the trends are looking, it's going to turn blue. It's inevitable. And but they're going to do whatever they can to retain as much power as they can for the, at least the next 10 years, because we just finished the census and we just went through the redistricting process that made it secured their seats for at least the next 10 years. So at least we know in the state, I don't think it's going to move much, um, but it's definitely moving in that direction. And so that was what they intended to do. They just wanted to just suppress Democratic vote. That's really votes. That's really what it was at the end of the day. And for us, the way I see it, I envision it and I have hope for the future and I have hope for Texas is to really help people vote freely and safely, make it accessible for people. Local governments really implemented some innovative solutions on how to vote safely because we were in the middle of the pandemic, right? As I had mentioned, El Paso had, sadly, I mean, we ranked 10 um, as far as the number of deaths that we had when it came to COVID in the nation. And so what we wanted to do was just give people, voters, the ability to feel like they could vote, they can vote safely. And so we implemented, you know, those drive-through, drive-through voting. You can't do that anymore. 24-hour voting. These innovative solutions just to make it more accessible and easy for people. I mean, how difficult, I mean, why are we making it so difficult? I mean, we know why. And it's so difficult for them to just come up with just you know, voter integrity when they can't point to a single case of voter fraud. And so, I mean, people aren't stupid. They know. I mean, especially Democrats, they know. They know what, what this goal is intended to do. I'm hopeful for the future. It's it's going to be very difficult moving forward. Elections. I mean, this past election was a nightmare for many voters. A nightmare. The stories I'm telling you that I've heard from constituents, election judges, elections administrators, they're terrified that if they just mess, they, they, they just do, just make a simple mistake. And, you know, it's just that these fear tactics, sadly, is 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 really taking a toll on a, on a number of, of people. And you saw it during this last election. And that's not, that's when you vote. I mean, you don't want to feel terrible doing it. I mean, it's just, it's your civic duty. You want to cast your vote. You want your voice to be heard. And now it's such a terrible experience. It's no wonder people just, just gave up and they're just like, I, I don't want to be part of this. It's just not even worth it. You know, it's unfortunate. It is it is really disheartening to see. What's really fascinating about it, I think, from our point of view as a data company is that we we also run a data company and there's a data story about this, um, about this discussion that's taking place. And, uh, you know, from the point of view of a data systems exercise, I suppose voter integrity could be rephrased as something like data validation. You're trying to make sure that you know, when the input comes in, it's properly validated. The fields are, you know, of the right data type and 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 you've got high confidence in, uh, you know, the origins, the provenance of that and so forth. And it doesn't sound like there's anything really in conflict with what you were proposing or what you were talking about. There's innovative solutions of having greater access to voting uh, through drive-throughs or through 24-hour voting availability. What did you think about the argument that there is a need for data validation, if you like, or, or an improvement in data validation so that the confidence can be there in the result? During South by Southwest, Christine and I were talking, I mean, we're, I mean, in our campaign, we're like very much a data-driven campaign. I mean, I'm all about it. I mean, especially, I mean, you're seeing the data that's coming from just kind of the trends of the state what we saw as far as voter turnout, how communities are voting, what messages work. 
I mean, the data that's involved with this is so on point and it's, it's something that is, is, is very much needed. Um, and data, again, though, could have been used in this bill. I mean, and we just like turned our backs to it. It's like, okay, show me the proof. Show me the data that there was any sort of, like, like we were talking about some voter fraud. Show it to me because there are the process in order just to cast your vote is arduous. I mean, and it's good. I mean, there's so many checks and balances to ensure that the data is is accurate, right? And ensuring that there's integrity behind. We implemented in El Paso not too long ago, feel comfortable just kind of voting electronically through the voting systems. And so what we do now is like, once you once you vote, then it prints out this ballot in essence, and you can double check your work and then you personally cast your vote. Like you, so, so many new steps in data to ensure that it's it's accurate. And it when it goes through the process, I mean, the immense amount of hours and the people that are involved to ensure that the data is accurate. I mean, I for my campaign, I had someone that was watching as each vote was counted to ensure that the data is accurate. And even that wasn't good enough for some people in saying that our system is is that has faults to it. There's no point in in this argument where, I, like I said, that there was any sort of proof, any sort of data analysis that showed that there was a need for more voter integrity. That you know there was fraud in the system. There there was not any and. We use as legislators, data is our, our is our, I mean, that's the, that's the way we make our, any sort of, of solid argument is through, is through data. And this is the first, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't point to it. They couldn't use data. It was just like these make-believe stories, like testimonies that they heard hearsay. But when you look at numbers, there was there weren't any, you know, and it, it was really unfortunate because this is the state of Texas. I mean, and and it was it was just a it was just a bad reflection that we couldn't pinpoint we couldn't prove anything we couldn't back up any of our or any of the arguments they were making they couldn't back it up with any sort of solid data infrastructure nothing I mean and it's it's really important we could have been very powerful in this argument for them but they didn't have it so yeah data is an incredibly important tool for telling a story and, and demonstrating and breaking intuitions and, and being able to have a reasonable conversation because it enables so much transparency. There was a lot of discussion a couple of weeks ago, and, and I think this is happening in our country and in the United States and around the world, around trusting governments, around transparency, access to information that people can trust because of misinformation, disinformation, and now, of course, malinformation through election campaigns. So to what degree do you believe data can be a tool um, for local communities to, you know, have that voice or for people in El Paso to have that voice at Capitol Hill. And I'm further to that, I'm really interested in your conversations that you did have with the vice president. What was the feedback from your colleagues uh, and leaders in Capitol Hill? You know, um, this conversation I think is is uh, so, so important in in relation to access to information because this is the thing with campaigns. Um, one, they're costly, right? They're really, really costly. And the information that voters are getting from campaigns are is information that they that the candidates want them to see, right? So it doesn't paint the entire picture of what's 
really at, at, at play here. Like, for example, my opponent had sent out this, this mailer against me um, without any like information or sources to back it up and put me next to like Trump and PACs and like all these right people and said that we share common Republican interests without any sort of, again, data or information to back that up. Right. And so it's, it's, it's really, it's really disheartening. And when I was going to the door this, this time around, there were so many um, in, in all the, in a lot of the races that were happening here locally, so many newcomers, people weren't familiar with a lot of the track records, didn't know who these people were. And they kept looking, they're asking me, is there a central place I can go that can just give me the information? Because obviously the information we're getting from the campaigns is what they want us to see. But where can we go? Like, is there, is there like some sort of central um, website where we can see all this data, see like their track records, see all of that? And, you know, I'm like, you know, that is sorely needed in this community and I'm sure sorely needed across the state because access to that information will only help people make more informed decisions. And unfortunately, that's not the case and that's not what's happening. It is it is it is like a web. It is like an entanglement just to find information on these various races, on what this certain candidate believes and what they do. And I'm going off on on a, a little bit of a tangent, but you know, there has been cuts across the board. I mean, in every industry, but especially in media. So our paper, the the paper we've had here for so long, El Paso Times is now, they're pretty much going to end here pretty soon because of just the the wave of just new uh, with social media and how people are getting their news may not be as accurate. And so unfortunately, you're seeing a decline on on that level. So ensuring that people have the correct information and the adequate information is is so critical now more than ever because of just the way technology is moving, right? Um, and so your all's work is so key to ensuring, I mean, I hope you all get involved with more of this, especially with, with politics, because it's, like I said, it's sorely needed and you all play such a key role in that. And I'm glad you all are having those discussions, especially with legislators. I hope you're having it with, with more people to really highlight the need um, for more investment um, in, in building more data infrastructures when it comes to not only campaigns, but just in general, when it comes to legislative issues and moving forward. To answer your question about how it went with, with, President, with, 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 with President Kamala Harris, it was a great conversation that we had had with her. Um, she was very supportive of our efforts, lent us many resources when it came to um, voting rights and, you know, the different avenues we can take. Um, and she personally just felt connected to it because her family, I mean, there's been, a, it, it just with looking at her history, we're almost taking a step back in history because we made it very difficult for, for minorities to vote in this nation. And I feel like with, you know, with the, with the poll tax and a number of things where people had to really work very hard to just cast their vote, she expressed her story about that, about her family, you know, and, and, and being an, you know, an immigrant here in, in the nation and just how hard her family had to work to ensure that not only like there's that women have the right to vote, but that, you know, people feel comfortable and safe without having to pay a poll tax, for example, it's just further attacks on disenfranchised communities to keep them from voicing their concerns and casting a vote. So she was, she relayed that story. It was very personal to her. 
And I think that's why she felt like she had a, she really had skin in the game when it came to, to came to this voting suppression bill. So we are, I'm grateful to her for all of her advice and all, and, and just all the support that her and her staff lent us in maneuvering through such a complex process in Congress. And so she was absolutely incredible through, throughout that, that process. And we're really grateful to her for opening her doors to, to all of us to feel our plea to come to Tech Cruises Aid to help us in protecting people's freedom to vote. And you talked about it and that she, that she said it was a black and brown movement led by women which is really fascinating and interesting uh, to hear. Can you share with us what is happening outside of Texas in this, in this movement? Yeah, you know, and, and what was really exciting to see throughout this whole process was when Texas broke quorum and, you know, was, we were fighting, you know, for, for the right to vote in our nation's capital, it really ignited this passion amongst other legislators across the nation. And we had one day, it was like a lobby day, and you had delegations from across the nation come join us from New Mexico to Arizona to California to Georgia, Florida, like joining us because it, it in essence gave them the courage to to do the same, to fight for such an important issue that's going to have lasting impacts for their communities. And when you look at the the makeup, I mean, and this was what Vice President Harris was saying, she was really looking to the model of this black and brown caucus and and primarily led by women and wanting to replicate that model. And I know she has had had meetings and conversations sharing that story about what happened in Texas. And it was an incredible model because it, it at least it worked in this one issue for at least the state. And again, just giving other legislators across the nation the courage, the, the will about like how we did it. We're not reinventing the will about what we what we believe could make this bill better in the future, so on and so forth. We're now sharing these ideas now with one another because and it and it opened the door because we had I, we typically don't have relationships you know with you know with members like in New Mexico or other states so this really kind of opened that door and forged these relationships and now it's like we we are now turning to each other for like best practices we're now turning to each other when it comes to you know, what's going to be happening in, in the next session, what more, you know, what disastrous bill is coming up next. It, it really kind of opened those doors and for, for not only Texas, but for legislators across the nation. So it was really powerful to see and really exciting because these, this communication is now going to continue, continue on with the upcoming legislative sessions in each of our state. I'm really inspired when I watch what goes on in the United States and observe that there's this federalist system where you're able to have local policy, where the states have a considerable amount of autonomy to make their own decisions and craft their own rules and you know live life the way they want to live it. It strikes me that that kind of a model for a united state nation, the ability for those states to experiment 
and to uh, you know to try different things and to discover what works and what doesn't, and then from learn from one another. It seems like a really powerful and important mechanism that's got to be available. And then your point about how El Paso has potentially a very different cultural perspective on a variety of different policy positions than perhaps the like the broader state of Texas, if. You've observed that there's a um, a more conservative march in the legislature of the state of Texas. That you know perhaps there's uh, a need for greater degree of local autonomy for El Paso to be able to do the El Paso's thing. You know, can you speak more about what you think would be the future, if you like, of that? Is that something that you're working towards to have greater autonomy and to be able to do those things for yourselves? Do you see that happening more and more across other states of the U.S. as well? You know, I wish it was that way. You know. If we're, I mean, how do I even, how do I begin to like untie this knot? It's just, I, there's not many of us in the legislature that have local government experience. And sadly, there has been a trend, a really stripping any sort of local control. It's an attack on local control because they do see, for example, I'm going to give you one issue in particular. It's, it's regarding consumer rights. One of the first issues that I worked on when I was at city council on the local level was giving um, consumers more protections when it comes to predatory lenders. I don't know if that's an issue that is is close to, to, to you all, but it's certainly an issue that has an impact here in El Paso. These the industry, you know, they, they, they issue out these loans at these ridiculous, with the ridiculous interest rates. I mean, upwards to a thousand percent at times, right? And they target communities of color, uh, students and military, which we have here in El Paso, right? And so we knew that the state was not going to come to our aid because the the interests, the special interests involved with this industry in Texas, they have a hold on the on sadly on the legislature. So we in El Paso, we what we did is we passed an ordinance that added protections for consumers in El Paso because we knew the state was not going to come to our aid. So we did that. And Texas does not like that. Cities are taking it upon themselves to do their job, unfortunately, because, and and, and the, the, the list goes on as far as like the issues that we, like cities, especially more urban cities, have to implement because the state will not come to our aid. And they don't like that. And so every session, every legislative session, there's some bill that strips more and more liberty. And so it's unfortunate. I wish I wish most of us, at least the majority, had local government experience because you can see the 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 importance of local governments. And the, again, local governments are closest to your communities. They have better they have a better understanding of their communities as opposed to like us at the at the legislature telling someone like in East Texas, like in a rural, like that's hundreds of miles away, what to do, even though your needs are very different from ours, you know? So I wish we would listen more to our local leaders. Unfortunately, it's a power grab in this state. And at least for now, under this leadership, I don't see that happening. But if it were up to me, yeah, no, I would certainly, I'm very much about local control because of just, my time there and what I've seen that the value that they offer the communities. Really feels to me like you are with your uh, fellow representatives at the front line of the fight for democratic process and for voice, local voice and decision making and democracy. Uh, there's two things I want to ask you about. The first is what the people in your 
76 district, what do they care about? Firstly, what, what is really problematic for people that you represent right now? And then the second thing I wanted to ask you, which is, is more sensitive, which is around the terrorist attack that occurred and the anxiety that people feel. When I was in America just a few weeks ago, I had this sense of this, uh, and it was being discussed, this issue of um, potentially civil war. Could you just comment on, firstly, the the issues people care about in your district, and then is this concept a, a real one? No, and um, you know, this was um, I love. I mean, campaigns are not easy. They're they're. I wouldn't really wish them upon anyone. I mean, they're very difficult. There are a lot of stress and very negative. But what I absolutely love about campaigns is the ability to reconnect with people. And we haven't been able to do that in so long because of the pandemic. I mean, we're still going through it. We're still living through it. But I haven't seen so many, I haven't seen many of these people in years, right? Um, because we were pretty much in isolation for a very, for a very long time, like, like the, like the rest of the world, right? So it's not something that's just unique to, to El Paso here. But when I'm going door to door, it was, was really quite sad because the level of anxiety is is real and you know and it's just interesting because you know how you know when you greet someone you haven't seen in a while you're like how are you doing oh i'm doing good you know it's just that you know that's it's the same response that's not the response you got at a door like how are you doing oh you know and then they start relaying it's like they're people were eager yearning for just a conversation you know face-to-face conversation but we're so open and willing to talk about what they're really feeling and going through. A lot of loss, a lot of death, sickness, stress, work, people feeling overworked and undervalued and underpaid. I, I can't tell you just the level of anxiety I just felt from, from people this last campaign. And it was it was hard. I mean, I was I was grateful that I had the opportunity to hear so many stories and thankful that they let me in let me in their homes to really share some really vulnerable things, um, heartfelt things. And so I'm so grateful to them for doing that. I mean, these conversations were at least I mean, they didn't they weren't shorter than 30 minutes. The vast majority of conversations I had with people still top of mind is COVID. I mean, that's still, I think, what had a big impact and still having a lasting impact on on families today and just needing, just feeling this sense of safety. People just don't feel that, especially when they look at our leadership. Like I was telling you about that gun law or lack thereof that passed. And it's just feeling, it's like a sense of, they're feeling just almost gotten maybe neglected a little bit because, you know, these are real issues, whether it's teachers that are just exhausted, exhausted with this pandemic, having to act like parents and counselors and and then do their job as teachers and doing it all a hybrid of virtual and not and then feeling the stresses from your having to you know, produce all of these results, even though the kids, ha- the the loss of learning is just, we're going to feel this for decades, um, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. And t- teachers are just feeling undervalued, you know, especially in they're not, they're not paid as well. And we as, as a legis- legislature, our obligation is to fully fund education and we're not doing that. 
Um, so that's what you just, in essence, felt is just the need, this sense of just feeling neglected. Here's, we have a lot of teachers in my district. There's a, there's a lot of teachers. So I was, I, I definitely sense that healthcare workers that I just feel for, we don't see what's going on behind those white walls. You know, we don't see it. Um, but there's still so much sickness that's happening in our, in our hospitals and they're feeling their, the turnover is crazy. There's a lack of nurses, you know, a lack of, of doctors in these positions because of just the immense amount of stress that they're under. Mental health, I think is going to be such an important discussion coming up. Um, and it has to be for many, uh, for many legislative bodies across the nation and around the world because of just what happened through this pandemic. So it's it's mainly, guys, just really feeling like there's a support system that they can look to their leaders to know that we understand what they're going through and give them the support that they need, whether it's increasing teacher pay, whether it's giving healthcare workers, you know, the the, the rights that they deserve and, you know, that they're, that they're feeling as though um, they're not being overworked and giving them mental health, uh, you know, uh, resources that's currently not available to many, many institutions and organizations or small businesses that are hurting, feeling like they need some relief from the state, considering we considering we had imposed so many restrictions like, OK, how, what are we doing to help them? It's really just that support. And it's all because, I mean, COVID is still top of mind, if that makes any sense. So. If I feel like if if people felt that their government was working for them, I feel like the anxiety levels would be, I mean, they would be a lot lower than they are today. It was really hard, guys, to just go and hear these stories, but it was real. And I think we all need to do it um, as legislators because I will be thinking about all those stories in the next session and everything that I'm fighting for, everything I'm working towards is, is for them and still reeling through. And so it was such a valuable experience to, to have just come off the campaign trail. Like I mean, I know like many other people that were in competitive campaigns did. And I'm curious to kind of hear from the rest of my colleagues to see how their experience was, to see if it was anything similar to mine. And I have a feeling it it, it may it may have. And I don't know if y'all saw this in the news about how Texas was literally freezing in the dark. People were literally dying in the dark because of the grid that failed. We in El Paso didn't have that. We're, we're on a separate electric grid. Then there, again, another, another way that we're not a part of Texas, they're on a, a, the rest of Texas on another grid. So people are still facing PTSD because of that. Like people are worried about the summer. If it becomes too hot, is the grid going to shut down again? We had some cold weather recently. People were on edge, so worried that their lights were going to off again and they were going to be freezing um, in the dark. And so it's just been, it's been, it's been one thing after the other in the state. I mean, and especially for El Paso. I mean, we had the shooting, like I said, that happened, the mass shooting that happened. We had COVID. We had a number of immigrants that were fleeing their countries um, from violence that we had to, we had to provide aid to. So it was, it's just been a number of events that have happened in this community. And so I really hope that we don't have short-term memories and we remember these stories. We remember these issues that um, really created some resilience for our community and built resilience. And we take that fervor into this next session as we are, as we're discussing and deliberating all these issues. I hope it's, I hope we are able 
to discuss real business of the state and not these like red meat issues that just further divide us. I hope we can come together and really think about, you know, what's going to be most important for for our families all across the state. It's so inspiring, again, to hear you so focused on just the quality of life of your constituents and on local issues. You know, I would, I would echo that and agree with that strongly. That's, that's really where we all need to have our focus back to basics, you know. And I, I want to come back as well into um, to South by Southwest, which, you know, I, did, I didn't have the privilege of being able to attend, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, if, if the conditions continue as they are and we're able to travel again or get to, you know, see more of El Paso and yourself. But I'm really, uh, I'm keen to find out from your experience at Southwest, as our listeners will know, um, a technology conference, a huge conference where lots of folks come to share amazing ideas and, and swap ideas and thoughts. What was it that inspired you most that you took away and found most powerful from what you heard at South by Southwest? South by Southwest is just awesome. I mean, and this is my first time. I mean, I live in Texas and this is the first time I've ever attended, strangely, South by Southwest. You know, we always we we always have a presence at South by Southwest. We I mean, the, the El Paso organizations um, go, but I, I had never been part of it until this year being being on the panel. And what was so exciting and what loved and I felt like such a nerd just going to all of these different, you know, uh, you know, conference, not conferences, but the, these discussions, because again, it's just that information. It was not information overload, but it was just like they, they, they did such an incredible job of taking just like an issue, right. And uh, talking about it, maybe looking at it from a different perspective. I mean, anything from like, cultural issues, social issues. I mean, anything that impacts business to like what, I mean, data, like what y'all are part of. I mean, everyone feels like they have a seat at the table and it's just this access to information that I think is so important because there's just so much of it. You don't know, you don't know what's real, what's not, what's, what you don't know any of that. I mean, because there's so much information that we're constantly getting, but they've done it in such a great way where they've brought all of these leaders from every single industry, practically, and the people, the people that they bring in are not only knowledgeable, but they're reputable to have these discussions that, that are not typically discussed and integrating technology and then bringing in the arts with music. I mean, it was just incredible. And I hope you can come out again. But I just what, what was great is just the ability personally just to kind of connect with others. I went to this one discussion where it was a it was a forum of female mayors. And so we I heard just some of the ideas that they're doing for their communities and I'm like how can we collaborate? Like let's bring let's work together at the ledge. Let's to help, you know, in, in this community you can come to El Paso. I mean, we were able to to connect so many dots and the ideas that they had I shared some ideas like with parental leave and just what they're doing for their workforce development. And I'm like, how is it that we haven't found each other before? And these, this conference really gave you that ability to really kind of connect with people you would typically not connect with. Um, And, but what's great is that it's now that connections made, having the ability to discuss, like, I'm, I'm with y'all, like, and and we're like in a complete, you know, we're in, I'm in Texas. And then, Y'all in Australia, but what great way we would have never made this connection if it wasn't for South by Southwest. I hope like from this discussion, you know, somebody can take something right and maybe 
it, it could inspire, you know, an issue that they're currently, you know, faced with or discussing. I mean, that's the whole point of this is just that that connection that was made and the networking. It was just wonderful. And I hope to continue, you know, our relationship, Chrissy, and we can keep in touch and keeping you all updated what's happening in next legislative session, especially like anything that may impact your field. I mean, we have that now, that medium to do it. And it's just, it's it's so great and, and gratifying. And I know I'm going to keep in touch with these. We're already discussing on, you know, some legislative priorities that we can do moving forward with these with these female mayors um, from from communities from all across the nation. So it was it was that was, that's what's so neat about this conference. And of course, the learning opportunity. I mean, you can't you can't beat it. So next time I'm looking forward to seeing you, Adam, you have to come out um, next year and then we'll all reconnect again and debrief on all the good work we were able to do. Oh, uh, yeah, I agree. And I was at that mayor's panel as well. It's incredible. All the ideas. It's actually about connecting them all, isn't it? So, Claudia, I'm actually going to be back in Texas uh, in in just after Easter and hoping that I can come to El Paso because what we learned, what I learned there is that, you know, it all happens locally and data has been such an important tool for uh, local voices, for local decision-making, for community-led decision-making, really. So I'm hoping that, you know, if, if you are around, that I can catch up with you in El Paso when I'm there. Absolutely. Everything I was talking to you all about earlier, like the good Bexley food, just the margarita, all that stuff. I'll take you around town and just show you all the investments that we have made into our community through this community-wide led effort. I'd love to kind of just show you face-to-face what that all looks like. So I'm excited. Let's touch base. Let's continue to keep in touch. Let me know whenever you're in town. We'll definitely make it happen. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. You've been very generous. Thank you for your work, your openness, and your advocacy on behalf of the people you represent. Thank you all. No, and I thank you all for giving me this platform to, to discuss these issues. It doesn't happen often, so I really do appreciate um, being able to tell, you know, the, the story, the behind the scenes, and like I said, hopefully inspire, you know, others to be more engaged and involved, um, civic engaged, involved, bettering you know, uh, their community. So I appreciate you guys very, very much for, for hosting me on a number of important discussions. So thank you all so much. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.